Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at banyan.com. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Banyan Books Podcast. I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Really excited that today we're joined by a special guest, Elizabeth Earnshaw. Over the last decade, Elizabeth Earnshaw has become one of today's most trusted relationship teachers who has helped to transform countless relationships. Elizabeth, Elizabeth received her master's in marriage and couples therapy from Thomas Jefferson University. She is a Gottman therapist, a licensed marriage and family therapist, and a clinical fellow of the American Association of Marriage and Family Therapy, where she trains and supervises therapists as an approved AAMFT supervisor. Liz is the co-founder and head therapist at Actually, where she works to make premarital relational wellness mainstream and accessible. She also owns a Better Life Therapy in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, supporting clinicians who are helping couples every day, both in person and online. Liz is also the relationship advice host of Hash It Out on the iHeartRadio morning show, Good Risings, where she offers advice to everyday relational conundrums. An influential Instagram therapist going by the handle at Liz Listens, she has over 250,000 followers and shares tips on building functional relationships. Today, Elizabeth Earnshaw is with Banyan Books in conversation about her book, I Want This to Work, an inclusive guide to navigating the most difficult relationship issues we face in the modern age. Today's generation is changing the rules about committed relationships and looking to create more meaning within their lives. In this new environment, what couples need more than ever are effective, flexible tools to communicate, navigate hard times, and create deeper connections with their partners. With I Want This to Work, Liz presents for today's generation the most effective and proven steps for relationship success. If you'd like to learn more about today's guest, please visit her website at elizabethearnshaw.com or follow her on Instagram. Her handle is at Liz Listens. Banyan Books community, please join me in a warm welcome for Elizabeth Earnshaw. Liz, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. You know, this, this book of yours, uh, every single point in there is quotable and it, it's so it's so well laid out from start to finish in such nice digestible pieces with exercises for couples to go through and conversations to have i'm really curious about you know you've been doing this for over a decade now working as a couples therapist what was the inspiration to 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 write a book and what was your process your writing process yeah so i had a few inspirations one was that I felt like when I was working with couples, so I worked with a lot of couples and there would be certain concepts that I would want them to understand where it was almost a waste of their time to be learning about it in our hour session that they really needed to be able to use to process an argument or something like that. And so there's a lot of books out there and I would recommend books to them so that they could learn about the, the kind of foundational concepts that I wanted them to understand. 
Um, however, they would have to read like 20 books in order to understand all of these different concepts that were siloed in different books. So you could read like attached to understand attachment styles. You could read hold me tight to understand the importance of emotional responsiveness. You could read any of Gottman's books to understand about communication. But most people who are going to couples therapy have very busy lives and have a lot going on and they're not necessarily going to read 80 books during that process. So I always had in the back of my mind that I wanted to create kind of a guide that had all of that stuff in an easy to use reference book. And so if I had a couple that needed to learn about attachment styles, I could say, why don't you just turn to page X, Y, and Z and just read a little bit about it so that you can get some information. So that was one inspiration I had. The other inspiration that I had was that I work with a lot of same-sex couples and a lot of the books that are really great books, everything that's in them absolutely applies to all types of relationships, but the books would only include very heteronormative couples in them. And I remember I had one couple in particular that I was seeing and they read one of the great books that I like to um, ask people to read and they came in and they said, this is a really good book. It's really inspiring. However, there are no same-sex couples in this book. And so I'm not sure, does it actually apply to us or not? And that was really early on in my career. And I just remember being like, that is so wrong and not right. And I can't keep recommending this book to my same-sex couples because they're not going to feel included in it. And so I also always wanted to write a book that made sure that people could see themselves in the book. And so those were, those were my, my goals. The process is a wild process. I'm sure just talking to authors, you know, you know, like that they all probably feel fairly shocked at how much goes into writing a book. I will never look at books on the shelf that in a bookstore the same again, because you have to go through so many editing processes and you really have to be able to think out, you know, how is this book going to make sense to the reader while also including everything you want to include. And so I had to chop a lot of things. There's more, there's more that I wanted to include. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, there's so much to cover and, and I thought you did an incredible job. Um, I was really captivated the whole time. Now, one of the things that you open with, you talk about the four stages of relationship. I'm wondering if you can just briefly cover those four stages and then tell us a bit more about the tension and acceptance phases. It seems people get stuck in the tension phase quite often. Yeah. So when we're moving through relationships, we're often in different stages within these relationships. And they are somewhat linear at first. And then after a while, we kind of move back and forth. And so those four stages, we kind of start off in this, you know, what a lot of people call their honeymoon phase. And in that stage, you are being flooded with hormones that make you really want to bond with the other person. Um, it makes you minimize all of the things that irritate you about them and you magnify everything that's great about them. So if you can think back to any of your relationships, and this isn't just romantic, this is like our friendships too, where we're like, yes, I want to go to every single yoga class with this new friend I met. We get coffee all the time and they're funny and they're easygoing and da, 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 da. And so we're really trying to bond with this person and in order to do that, because we're social creatures, our body does a lot of wild things to help us to do it. Now, what then starts to happen as we get to know somebody is we face stress with them. And that stress can be stress that is resulting from a happy event. So it might be that you get engaged or you are getting married or having a baby or buying a house or you got a new job or whatever, like these exciting events. And it could also be stress that's in the face of upsetting events. We're struggling with money. We lost a job. Somebody's died. We are, you know, not able to figure out how to buy a house right now because the market's so competitive. And when that starts to happen, we really have to reckon with who the other person actually is. And we start to recognize that they're not us. 
which is a really hard thing for humans to recognize, is that their partner doesn't think like them, doesn't navigate situations the way they navigate situations. And in this realization phase is what I call it, you start to, people tend to start to say things like, I would have never done that. That's not how I would have dealt with, you know, my friend's mom's death. I would have sent a card and you should have sent a card. And that's not how I would have invited people to our wedding. And so people start to, in this phase, get frustrated with who the other person is. And they also have this hope that the other person is going to become the magnified version of who they were before. What happened to you? Who am I in a relationship with? You used to be so fun and I don't know if I feel that way anymore. Now in this stage, some people break up. Some people kind of, they go back and forth between like idealizing each other and really realizing who they are. And then other couples move into attention phase. And this is where they're kind of fighting about these differences all the time. And they get gridlocked and they don't really know where they're going to go from there. Again, some people break up here. Ideally, we move from that tension stage into a stage of being able to accept. And when we're in the acceptance stage, doesn't mean we don't fight. It doesn't mean the other person doesn't irritate us. But what it does mean is that we tend to stop using language like you really should do X, Y, and Z, or I, I thought that you were a person who did this. And we actually start to feel disappointed less in the other person because we, we see who they are and we navigate our conflicts and our frustrations with each other based off of that acceptance rather than like this constant tension um, denial around who we each are. Wonderful. One of the things I love about your book was just reading it. I felt like a settling into my body, like, ah, oh, the, the feeling of what it would be like to be, you know, in a relationship that actually puts into action these tools. And you, you talk about the three R's of relationship and you refer to them throughout the book. Can you tell us about the three R's and, and why they're so important? Yeah. So when I have been working, you know, when I've worked with couples, what I've found is that regardless of which like theorist lens you're looking through when it comes to relationships, they're kind of all saying the same thing over and over and over again, right? If you look at what Sue Johnson talks about, she's always talking about um, emotional attachment, attunement, and being connected. When Gottman is talking about couples, he's talking about the importance of somebody wants your attention, he calls it making a bid, that you turn towards the bid and you respond to the bid. So you could, you could pull up a million different people, but they all talk about the same things. And what they talk about is they talk about the importance of responsiveness, which means I attune to you, I notice that you exist when you try to connect with me, I connect with you, and I believe that you will do the same for me. And to go even further, I'm able to do that with myself in a healthy relationship. So I can respond to my own feelings and my own needs and I'm present with myself. The other thing that is super important in relationships is respect, right? If we don't have respect in our relationships, which at a baseline is saying, I think that you're um, a worthwhile human being. I like you. I value you. I'm going to treat you with positive regard. Then our relationships are not going to feel like a safe place to be. And if our relationships are not a safe place to be, we can't do the important things. We can't play. We can't be vulnerable. We can't resolve conflict very well because I don't feel like you respect me then I'm going to go into our conflicts with that belief. And that's either going to cause me to want to fight with you all the time, or it's going to cause me to really pull back and not really express what I need to express. And then even further, I can't respect myself if I'm in a relationship where I'm not respecting or being respected. And the, the third thing that's really, really important is reliability. And reliability is the ability to trust, right? And if we can't trust the other person, then we're always on the edge of our seat. We don't really know what's going to happen. And our relationships, they can't flourish because we can't make goals. We can't plan. We're always wondering, like, are they going to be there for me or not? And reliability isn't just about what's written on paper. So it's not just, oh, okay, well, we're married or we live together or whatever it is. 
it's being able to kind of consistently predict most of the time what's happening in your relationship. And so I've worked with a lot of people when they're in relationships with someone where it's like, I don't know, sometimes they just stop talking to me for a few weeks and they, they, you know, I don't even understand what happened just out of nowhere. They get upset with me. They won't talk. They give me the cold shoulder. They ignore me. That impacts that trust in the relationship. And we could go further to say, obviously things like relational norm violations. So affairs, any of those types of things impact as well. So when I look at relationships and when I'm working with couples, I'm looking to see, you know, what's that level of respect between both people and in the way that they can respond to themselves? What's it look like with responsiveness in this relationship? And how much reliability is there in this relationship? And often we can figure out then what we need to work on by figuring out where are people feeling the most uncomfortable in those three areas. Right. Thank you. You also talk about um, dependence, independence, and then the, the, gold, the gold standard is interdependence in a relationship, which creates securely attached partners. Can you give us a, a, an overview of, of what interdependence is versus dependence and interdepend, uh, independence and, and how that influences a securely attached relationship? Sure. So I'll try to keep it concise. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a <laughs> this lot. This is a big one. This is yeah. really, really important. We are human beings that need both a sense of independence and a sense of dependence. And depending on where you look, often relationship advice out there is very skewed. And so it'll either be very hyper-independent, we don't need each other, I don't need anybody, I'm an independent person, it's weird to have needs, whatever. Or it's very skewed on the other end. You should be everything to each other, you should just be what your partner needs you to be, um, you know, and, and really then becomes codependent. However, in a really healthy relationship, we have both because from birth, human beings are designed to want both of those things and to grow towards both of those things. So from birth, people need other people, right? They reach out for their caregivers, but even as they grow, they look for new social groups. They look for friends to connect with, colleagues to connect with, romantic partners to connect with. It's very normal. We need people. We want to help people. We want to be helped by people. We want affection. We want to give affection. All of that is very, very normal. On the other end, it's also very, very, very normal to desire independence. Again, from birth, that's what we're designed to do. We start seeking it. We seek it by learning to hold our own baby bottle, learning to crawl away, learning to make friendships um, and have interests outside of the family unit, moving out of our homes. All of those types of things happen for us as we're growing. Now, what can happen when we get into a relationship is if we haven't learned how to live in balance with both of those things, our relationships become really imbalanced because this human, this innate human need to have both of those things, one of those things gets blocked out. So what you'll see is relationships where even though the person to be, feel like a full person needs to be able to emotionally connect and attune and all of those things with another human, but they also need their own interest, space, privacy, all of that to keep the relationship. What they'll start to do is give up on one of those or to keep their own, the, the relationship they have with themselves, they'll give up on one of the things. And so you'll have relationships where somebody will kind of forget who they are over time. Everything will be about their partner and it'll be a lot about helping their partner, loving their partner, supporting their partner. We see this especially in families with kids. Everything becomes about the kids. And I'll be meeting with the individual many years later and they'll say things like, I actually don't know who I am anymore. Or I feel very resentful. I used to have goals. I haven't met my goals because all I've been doing is making sure that I'm connected to these people around me, but I'm not really connected to myself. On the other end of that, some people are so afraid that they're going to be suffocated by the relationship that they lean into independence. And of course, these two people tend to get together, 
right? So we have one person who's like, I'm going to be really relationship focused. And the other person's like, nope, I'm going to be really, really self-focused. Now, the goal is that we want to get to interdependence. And interdependence is, another word for it is differentiation. I don't know if anybody out there has heard that word, but it's my favorite concept in the world. Look it up, read about it. Differentiation is the ability to, when you are with other people, to be able to hold them in sight, to be able to care about them, be curious about them, you know, want to have compassion for them, want to support them, all of those types of things, hear them out, take their influence, all of that while also being able to hold yourself in mind. So it's the ability to see yourself and see others. And that is a muscle that a lot of us don't have. A lot of us struggle in our relationships to hold both. So interdependence is when we build a relationship where we're able to hold both of those things in sight. I'm able to say, I have boundaries, I have needs, I have goals, I have feelings, and I'm not going to, um, push those down and hide them away, but I'm also not going to use those to steamroll you and to push you out of the relationship either. And so that's what really the whole book is hoping to help people to do. Thank you. One of the main focuses of the book is, is how couples handle conflict. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering as a, as a therapist, when you're seeing your, your clients, um, what are you looking for? What are the things you're observing and looking for in terms of how couples deal with conflict together? Yeah, so um, I wrote the book so that it kind of helps you self-assess what to look for um, when you're thinking about your own conflict. One thing that I, when I'm actually in a couple session, and this is one of my favorite parts of working with couples, I will ask them to argue in front of me. So I will say, I'm going to set a timer for five minutes. I want you to pick a topic where the two of you never get anywhere. And so they'll pick a topic and they'll talk about it. And it's amazing. Even when it's inorganic, people go back into their conflict cycles like that. Like you would assume that people would kind of pretend for a minute because they're in front of somebody that they're trying, um, a stranger, and we're always trying to impress strangers, but people very quickly go into it. And I will look for, are they taking each other's influence? So I'll watch and I'll see, do they ask each other questions? Do they ever slow down to really try to understand what the other person's saying? Are they able to say things like, oh, okay, you know what? I kind of didn't hear that before in that way, but that makes sense. And I could see why you think that. Are they able to validate emotions? I get that you're angry about this. I understand it's frustrating you. I know that it's not making you happy that like we've made this decision. So really being able to be responsive to emotions. I look to see whether or not they're using the four horsemen. So is there criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling, or contempt? So I'll see that if I see them saying things like, you always do this, you never do this. Um, I'll, I'll see it if I see like um, sneers, sarcasm. I look to see if people don't take responsibility for their part. So I look for responsibility taking. You know, are they able while they're having this argument to say, I totally get my role in this. I know that I didn't do X, Y, and Z the right way. Um, and I'm willing to own that. And then of course, still be able to hold on to themselves. And this is what I need or whatever it is. Um, I look for their ability to express needs, to express boundaries, um, and ultimately to problem solve and compromise. And there's a lot of things that I'm looking for, but those are some of the biggest things that I'm watching as couples argue in front of me. Thanks. One of the things that is, seems really huge for all of us to understand and for couples to understand and put in practice in the relationship is the perceived threat and actual the physiological impact that perceiving threat has in the in the relationship and you use the term flooding for this overwhelm uh in the nervous system uh, can you tell us about the stress response and and how we can work with it in our relationships yeah so that's also something i'm watching for in couples is how much of this argument is actually about their stress response when, and I want anyone who's listening to think back to an argument, actually. So just take a minute, think back to an argument where 
you, when you look back, you're like, that wasn't even me. Or even when you were in the argument, you remember yourself having a conversation with yourself, like, oh my God, shut up. Why am I saying this? Why am I, why do I keep going? Why do I keep stomping? Whoa, why does, why can't I stop myself right now? We've all had those conversations where it's like almost out of body. It's not, it doesn't feel like it's us. When people are in arguments, there are two types of arguments we have. There's one where we're still in our bodies, where we can still access um, our needs for self-soothing, where we can still access the parts of our brain that help us to be relational. So in our brain, there's aspects of our brain that help us to communicate, right? And help us to have reasoning skills. You need access to that part of your brain to have a good conversation, especially a difficult conversation, because that part of you helps you to use affection. It helps you to be curious. It helps you to use humor. If you've ever been in an argument and someone tried to make a little joke, what they were trying to do, they were recognizing that everything was getting out of control. They were trying to bring it down. If your response to the joke is to laugh, that means you're still online. If your response to the joke is to say, you're not funny, why would you say that right now? That means that you are flooded. Because when we're not flooded, we have access to humor. Even if we don't think it's that funny, we still have the ability to say, all right, I, I get what you're saying, I'm here with you. So in some arguments, we can get through it because we have relational skills. In other arguments, what happens is that we feel relationally threatened. And our body doesn't detect relational threat as any different than other types of threat. So your body starts to be pumped with stress hormones. And this sends you into, and I'm sure you've heard, like fight or flight, right? This sends you into fight or flight, essentially. And as those stress hormones are going through your bloodstream, parts of your brain slowly start to turn off and you slowly start to become less able to navigate difficult social situations. When some people become flooded, they freeze and they do what John Gottman calls stonewalling. And what that looks like is kind of sitting like this, so crossing your arms, maybe shaking your foot up and down, looking to the side. To the person that's talking to you, it seems like you don't care, right? oh my gosh, why do you keep looking away from me? Why are you crossing your arms? What are you doing right now? To the person doing that, if you can think about it in terms of their nervous system has been hijacked, what are they doing? They're soothing themselves. The way human beings soothe themselves, they hug themselves, they look away, they try to get understimulated. <sighs> they do that, they sigh. But when we hear that, we think, oh my God, you're being a jerk. Why did you just sigh at me? Um, so that person is self-soothing. Some people, when they get flooded in arguments, they get fighty. And I'm more of a fighter when I get flooded. So I do a lot of embarrassing things. I stomp, I go in and out of the room, like, I don't want to talk to you anymore. And then I come back in 20 minutes. No, we are talking about this. I can't stop myself. And we become more aggressive, right? And again, same thing is happening. Our bodies are responding in two different ways, but we're feeling threatened and we're responding to that in the only way that that threat response knows how. And then some people flee. Some people literally say, I'm out of here. And this is sometimes when divorce threats come up that later on people are like, I shouldn't have ever said that. That was a horrible thing to say. This is where people stomp out to their cars and drive away. But when our threat detection response is happening in an argument, our bodies take over. Right. So how do we, in, in our partnership, how do we um, use skillful means to uh, work through those, those moments when we're flooded? And also, how do we, how do we uh, understand what the other person is going through while also holding them accountable for their words and actions? Such good question. So I'll start with the first one. What do we do to navigate this? So frustrating. When I work with couples, they'll say to me, we've been to couples therapy for however many years and nothing is changing. We've used all this speaking and listening stuff. We know all the rules. It's not working. 
The problem is, is that the rules they're trying to use are the rules that only work if your body is calm. So yeah, speaking and listening isn't going to work if your body isn't calm. Empathetic listening is not going to work if your body is not calm. And so of course, couples therapy hasn't been working. So what I'll ask them to do, well, first we'll map and we'll see, you know, is it flooding that's happening on happening in these arguments? And I will actually have them track their heart rate. And so I'll ask them next time that you're in an argument, I actually want you to look at your Apple watch, or I want you to put something on your finger, see what your heart rate is. Because I promise, I almost promise you 99.9% .9 of the time, you're going to find that your heart rate is significantly elevated, which is a sign that you're flooded. And so in those moments, none of those skills are going to work. And what you want to do instead is what I call the hard conversation model, which is that instead you want to H, halt, which means just stop. No matter how hard it is, stop. And only one of you has to be responsible for that. Only one of you has to say, this isn't going anywhere. I'm going to take a break from this conversation. The second thing you need to do is attend. Attend is to attend quickly to the other person so that they don't feel abandoned, which might be saying something like, I'm going to stop this right now. So that's halt. We're not getting anywhere. And I don't need you to be super zen about it. I'm telling you this in real human terms, right? Because a lot of times I think couples therapy stuff, it's like nobody actually talks that way. So I'm going to tell you how people actually talk, which is they'll say something like, I don't want to flipping talk to you anymore. This isn't going anywhere. Good. You halted. Then you just have to do a little attending. I love you. I'm really angry at you, but I love you. I'm going to take 20 minutes. <laughs> That's all you have to do to attend to the other person. Then they're kind of responsible for tending to themselves in that moment. Then you have to attend to your nervous system. So please don't go in the other room and start texting each other. So many people will come back to a session and they'll say, well, we, we took a break, but it didn't work. And I'll say, well, what were you doing during the break? And they're like, well, we were just texting back and forth. And they're texting these huge blocks of like, well, you know, you didn't send Henry to the school last week. Well, I didn't send Henry to the school last week because blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so you're not attending to your nervous system. You're upsetting yourself more. Tending to your nervous system is take a shower, go for a walk listen to music, meditate, breathe, do something. We know, research has shown, it takes about 20 minutes, at least 20 minutes away from the stress for your body to calm down. So you need 20 minutes at least apart, and that's 20 minutes of calming down. Every time you pick up that cell phone to send one more text, you got to start the 20 minutes over again because <laughs> you're not going to be calm. Once your body feels calm, then what you're going to do is you're going to repair. And what repair has to look like in those moments, there can be a longer repair later, but the initial repair is something very basic. So any of those relational skills I was alluding to earlier, can I give you a hug? So affection, um, making a joke about yourself. That doesn't work for everybody. It has to work in your relationship. My husband and I love to make fun of each other and it immediately breaks the ice, but we know how to do it in a way that feels loving. Um, repairing by saying, sorry, sorry. I don't know why I was yelling like that. Can, can we talk? Repairing by taking responsibility. Wow, I really need to work on X, Y, and Z. So you quickly repair. And then what I encourage couples to do is to find a time to debrief. And what debriefing looks like is sitting down and spending a little bit of time talking about what happened. Talking about what happened does not mean that you're talking about all of the things you were talking about. So don't immediately go back into Henry's schooling, if that's what you were arguing about. You're not going to say, well, this is what I said, and this is what you said, and this is what I want. You want to talk about what you saw. If you were up on a mountain watching you and the other person arguing, what would you describe? And it can be really powerful to say something like, you know, I'm really upset about what just happened. I remember coming into the kitchen and I was trying to talk to you about something really important. And I think I saw you roll your eyes at me. And when you did that, I noticed myself getting enraged and I started yelling at you and da, 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 da. 
And a really important part of the debrief is thinking about what do I need to know about myself to make sure this never happens again? Not what do you need to know about the other person? <laughs> what do you need to know about yourself? I think I need to know that if I have a really important thing to talk to you about, that I probably shouldn't be bringing it up when we're getting the kids' lunches together in the morning. It's just not a good time. So that's the process you want to be able to go through with each other. Now, the second part of your question had to do with how this helps create a secure relationship. Or no, the the second part of the question, uh, uh, let me jog my memory here. Um, oh, how we hold each other accountable, yes. like understanding that the person is in their stress response, but also holding them accountable for their words and actions in that state. Really important. So in the moment, <clears throat> if you continue to try to engage, you're not really going to hold anybody accountable. So that's just reality. So a lot of the times we try to hold people accountable while they're flooded. And I always say like, try not to be doing this during moments where you've already lost your listener before you've even gotten them to listen. So a lot of times what people will do is they'll be like, you can't speak to me that way. No, come back. You have to talk to me right now. You can't just walk out. It's not going to work. So the best thing to do is to recognize either one of us or both of us is flooded. We need to take a break. Now, when you come back, that's during that debrief when you need to talk about boundaries. And I talk about boundaries in my book, but in relationships, we have to have boundaries. So you might say something like, I totally get that you were flooded. And remember, this is holding the other person in view while still holding yourself in mind. So I can see that you were flooded. I know that this is a sensitive topic for you. I completely understand that if, you know, if you saw me not paying attention, that that would be upsetting. And I bring yourself back into view. Moving forward, I am not going to, I am not, not you are not. I'm not going to stay in a conversation when you're yelling at me. So moving forward, if you start yelling, I am going to like leave the room. And, you know, if you need me to give you a signal or something, if you need me to say like, hey, I love you, but I'm leaving, that's all fine, but I'm leaving the room. It might be if there was an event where you really need an apology, of course, say that, right? Like we don't have to immediately repairing isn't about it's immediately all over. And that's where a, a lot of couples end up getting into trouble is they come back after these arguments and they're like, thank goodness that we're not arguing anymore. I don't want to poke the bear. I just want to enjoy the fact that there's peace. So I'm going to pretend this never happened. And then a couple months later, the same thing happens again. It's okay. We're not holding a grudge. It's okay to say, I'm still really upset about what you said to me. And I'm not sure, you know, what we're going to do about that, but we're going to need to find a way to repair. And in my book, I talk about like what you need in order to move forward and repair. You need apology. You need somebody to offer remorse, right? You need the other person to atone. So there's different things that we need when someone has really hurt us. And sometimes we need them on a very small level. In my book, I talk about a really silly example where my husband was really upset and fair enough. I had taken our son like on a play date and I disappeared <laughs> for a long time because I left my phone in the car and the play date was at one of our common friends houses and it was so fun and it was like 10 p.m. by the time we got back in the car. My poor husband at that point had like probably called the FBI to put out like a missing persons <laughs> report. So of course he's like very flooded and all those types of things. Now when I went home and I had to repair for this event because I upset him, my husband's very good at holding on to himself. So he was like, this is not cool. Like, I am still really upset about this. I'm not just going to be able to like jump back into like everything being fine. And I had to be able to say, you know what? You're right. I'm really, really sorry. I actually do. I had to take responsibility. I do need to get better at making sure that I communicate with people. I'm not good at that. Um, and I understand how you feel and I, I want to hear you out about that and all of those types of things. That was like a basic thing. 
by the next morning we were repaired, we were over it. Now, if there's something really big, like someone threatens divorce or they have an affair or, or whatever, that process is obviously much more in depth. And so, yeah, we have to, we, we can go through this debriefing, but it doesn't mean that we never get to the point where we have to repair with the other person. Thank you. And one of the things you talk about apologies versus faux apologies. <laughs> Can you tell us about what a real apology looks like? I think that's really important. It's so simple, but a lot of people miss on that. Yeah. So faux apologies, I'm actually like pulling it up in here so I can give a couple examples. Uh -huh. So we tend as humans to, to really struggle with apologizing. It's very uncomfortable to apologize. It brings up shame, brings up guilt. Those are feelings that we're wired to not love to feel for good reason, right? They, they're feelings in our bodies that are meant to help prevent us from doing bad things. So once we've done a thing that hurts somebody, we have to apologize. It makes us have to bring that shame and that guilt to the forefront. So what will happen is that sometimes people will water down their apologies. So they don't actually have to feel. And they'll water down their apology by using what I call faux apologies, which are things like the strings attached apology, which is I will say, I'm sorry when you do X, Y, and Z. So I hear that a lot in, in couples therapy. Yeah, I'll be sorry for that when you're sorry for what you did first. So we have strings attached to our, our apology. The other apology is I'm sorry, but. So the but-ology. I'm sorry, but I was really tired and that's why I did that and I was flooded and blah, 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 blah. The other is like an if-ology. So I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings, which is like, I'm not actually going to even admit whether I did or not. And I'm not going to talk about the fact that it hurts your feelings. I'm just saying like, if it did, then fine, I feel bad. <laughs> so there's a whole bunch of different ones that I, I note in the book. But what we want to do is instead is we want to be able to like lean into that actual feeling that we're having, which is really, 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 really hard. But we have to be able to own that to be able to move forward. If we don't, then what happens is that when we don't apologize, that shame and that guilt doesn't go anywhere. But what it makes us do is it makes us hide and burrow into ourselves more and more and more. So what I encourage people to do is to learn in their apologies how to take responsibility. That was absolutely my fault. I absolutely did scream at you that I wanted a divorce and there is no excuse for that. I take full responsibility for saying something so hurtful. We wanna be able to offer remorse. So that's actually allowing those feelings to come up. So when we stop using the ifs and the buts and the explanations, we feel. When I work with people that have had affairs, the reason I would say that they almost can, when couples have already apologized and they're in couples therapy and all of that, one thing that comes up again and again that stops them from moving forward is that one person isn't actually showing remorse. They're expressing it. Yeah, I'm sorry. I feel really bad. How many more times do you want me to say I'm sorry? All of that. But their partner will say, I've never seen you cry over this. I look at your face and you don't actually look stressed about it. When you talk about it, you seem really calm and flippant. If someone has been very hurt by you, but they don't see that you are also upset by that, they don't see your remorse, then the apology can fall really flat. The other thing that's really, really important to share is your reflection. And again, this is so dependent on the severity of the issue. So with my cell phone issue, my reflection was something like, I've thought about it and you're right, I never bring my phone with me. And so I'm noticing that about myself and I'm noticing I get really distracted. That's something I know. When we're talking about maybe couples who have had an affair, the reflection might sound something like, I've really taken time to reflect on why this happened. And I wanna to explain to you what I know about myself now and how I know I'm going to be able to prevent this in the future. That's really, really, really powerful. And then we need to be able to offer our repair. 
So what do you need from me? You know, with my husband on that silly example, it was just like a hug, like, give me a hug. All right, we're over it. Let's go to bed. For a really big issue, it might be something like in order for us to repair, I need you, you know, you had an affair at work. So I'm going to need you to figure out how you're going to help me feel safe again. You might have to come home at a specific time so that I'm not wondering, are you working later? Are you with your affair partner? And that person would have to be able to offer that to really repair the trust. And then finally, when you're offering an apology, when you're trying to work through a, a hurt that you've created with somebody, you can make a, you make a request. And what that request is, is it's saying something like, you know, you don't actually have to forgive me, but I would like to know, like, is my request is, is that, do you, do you forgive me? Or have I been able to do what you need me to do? And if not, what do you need from me? really being able to extend that to the other person. So the other person can then say, no, this still isn't okay. There's still more I need. Or they can say, yes, you know, I do think that this was helpful and I am able to move forward. Thank you. We've got a, a question here from Bernadette that really builds on what we're discussing here. Bernadette asks, what if your partner keeps repeating the behavior? They say, sorry, you point out that this is a recurring thing and they say, okay, but yet it happens over and over. What do you do? Mm, yeah, so that's a common issue in relationships and there's no direct answer, but I'll give you a few things to think about. So you aren't going to be able to necessarily get your partner to change. No matter how many times you point it out, no matter how many times you bring up that it upsets you, they have to decide that it's important enough for them to change it or build new habits or whatever. So you have to think, what do I do then when this happens? So if my partner is always 20 minutes late to an event, because of that, I feel embarrassed or I get impacted, I might say, you know what, no matter how many times I point this out, it's not changing. So I have three choices here. Either I just accept that they're a late person, that they're always late. And because of that, we make new agreements in our relationship. I'm going to drive separate. I'm going to take myself so that I'm not impacted by this and we don't have to fight about it because I accept that you're tardy and it doesn't bother you. And I accept that I like to be on time and it does bother me, so I'm going to go on my own and you can meet me there. So sometimes we accept it because the majority of issues between couples are what we call perpetual issues, which means it's differences in lifestyle. It's just differences in behavior. So I often ask people to reflect on, you know, are there compromises here that are beyond your partner changing? And if so, can you live that way? Once you get out of the gridlock and the tension of just wanting them to be the way that you are with things. If so, then let's figure those out. Now, sometimes the thing the other person is doing is not acceptable, right? So um, my husband, even though he still gets irritated, accepts that I suck at my cell phone. So what does he do? He works around it. I work around it. I and consider it as much as I can be and all of that, but we accept it. Now, let's say that your partner um, gets drunk and messes up the house. Let's say that your partner spends all the money in your bank account. And so because of that, you can't pay the bills this month and they did it without communicating with you. Let's say your partner says really hurtful things and you say, when you yell at me or when you curse at me, that is not okay. And they keep doing it. Now, here's some examples of things that just, they, they violate that basic level of security, safety, respect that we need in a relationship. And so those are the things that are really hard to say, hmm, I wonder how I could ex accept this. Like maybe, maybe when my partner curses at me, I'll just put in earphones and not listen. I mean, like, that's just not going to be what makes most people feel good and fulfilled in a relationship. So then your other two options are either 
that you try to keep working with the person to change it. Always an option. Everybody gets to choose their own path in their relationships. And that might be that you suggest things, that you, you know, suggest couples therapy, that you change the way the two of you bring up issues with each other, whatever it is. You, you make a list of all of the things you're going to change. The other option is that sometimes you get to a point when someone isn't changing and you realize this to me is a core need. And I can't be in a relationship without this core need being met. And because of that, I think I have to end the relationship. So in any given circumstance where the other person is repeating something that bothers us or hurts us, our only three choices are that we accept it and we get to genuine acceptance that if we can't, we keep trying to figure out a way to change it. And if that isn't working and we can't accept it because it's just not acceptable, then we have to figure out what do we do to move forward from this relationship. Right. Thank you. There's a question here from Stephen. This is a really interesting question. Stephen says, how can we be in a romantic relationship without clinging or possessiveness? I find it hard to reconcile the Buddhist teaching of non-attachment with love relationships. That's a really good question. So I think that when we think about, uh, you know, like movie love, we might see a lot of clinginess. When you're thinking about interdependent relationships, when you're thinking about differentiation, it's the opposite of clinging. It's the ability to be present. And in the ability to be present, you're not clinging. You're seeing, you're observing, you're responding to what is. And so when you really, really are able to be present with love, not present with control, sometimes people call, sometimes what people are calling love is control. I want them to do this. I need them to do this. If they're not here, I'm not going to feel good. You know, it's all about this needs to be controlled. The situation needs to be controlled. When you really can move into that space where you can observe yourself and what you need and how you want to navigate life, then, and you can also observe what's going on with the other person, you're not clinging. You're just responding to what's actually happening. You're also recognizing the reality that you're a human being and you're meant to be connected. Being connected isn't clinging. Being connected is being curious. It's noticing how somebody is feeling. It's attending to them when they're having, you know, human need in the moment. Um, and it's also being able to do that for yourself. That's great. Thank you. There's a question from Amanda who asks, what if your partner never sticks up for you? For example, with your mother-in-law or their friends. And when brought up to him, he rarely recognizes there was an issue until I'm completely flooded and then behave, behaves, uh, and then behaves that change, behaves that change will occur, but never does. I think that should say promises or says that change will occur, but never does. Yeah. Such a good question. And it is so frustrating when that happens, right? So first you should tell your partner, read my book, because there's an entire section <laughs> No, we'll talk to your partner about working on this. <laughs> when we are in um, a, rela a primary relationship, the job of that primary relationship is to help us feel safe and secure in the world. And so what happens though sometimes is that something will be introduced, well, not sometimes, always. We have something called thirds. Stan Tacken calls it thirds. If you look at systems theory, calls it the triangle or triangulation. But in our lives, there are constantly thirds, which means that when me and my mom are chatting, there's always the presence of my sisters. They're the thirds, right? And when people create a secure bond with each other, they're able to navigate their relationships as a unit. And what that means is that they say things like, hey, mom, um, we decided we, not Amanda decided, who then we're throwing under the bus, but we decided that this year we're not going to make it to Christmas. 
we are going to do it at home. Or we've decided that we're going to breastfeed our child. Or we've decided that we're going to sleep train. Or we've decided that we're going to move to California, whatever it is. When you do that, you're presenting a united front to outsiders. Now, when you don't do it, and when you say things like, um, well, I mean, the reason we're not coming to the holidays this year is because Amanda doesn't really like it there. Then what's happening is that you become the third, you become the bad guy, and they become the unit. And what that then creates is a dynamic of the outside world and my partner against me, instead of me and my partner united in navigating the outside world. It's very common to feel flooded about that and upset by that. And so that makes sense. Of course, I want to encourage, if you do, is that you have to be able to be present with yourself so that you can self-soothe that, right? This is, you know, your partner is going to have to work on that. You need to work on what do I do with my flooding? Um, and then you and your partner need to work on having a united front and maybe you know, you can show curiosity with your partner just to explore, like, what's that like for them? Why is that hard? Are they worried that their parent will be upset? Or do they not feel in full agreement with the decisions you made? And instead of, uh, instead of saying that to their parent, can they talk to you about that? But really trying to bring it back to you and your partner and not making it so much about the other people is also really important. That's great. Thank you. Sure. Thanks everyone for all of your wonderful questions. Uh, we're just, we're coming to, to the end of our time here. And Liz, I just wanted to, to really thank you uh, for taking the time to speak with us. I want to thank everyone in the Banyan community for being here. Uh, Liz, you talk about the importance of meaning making in relationships. And you point to the, the sort of evolution of relationships from in the past being more utilitarian to then being about belonging. And now it's really about this interdependent thriving and supporting each other's dreams in the world. Can you just, maybe we can close with giving us a little bit of an idea about the, the modern relationship and what it's all about. Absolutely. So this is one of my favorite parts to talk about because it's really touching. And when couples are having a tough time. Sometimes it's because they feel very disconnected from this part. When couples are thriving and I'm talking to them, you know, in therapy, what we find is that they talk a lot about why their relationship is meaningful to them. And the meaning aspect of the relationship can really help us to navigate life together. Because even when we're in conflict, we keep coming back to why it's meaningful to us. And there's a lot of different ways that in our relationships, we create meaning. Sometimes we feel meaning through a shared purpose. So we feel meaning because we have this purpose together of raising our children. We have a purpose together of being activists. We have a purpose together of being healthy, whatever it is, but we have this shared purpose. We also experience meaning and belonging. So this feeling of this is very meaningful to me in my life because maybe I've had a life where I never felt like I belonged, but I feel like I belong with you. We find meaning in moments of transcendence. So we find meaning individually that way. We also find it with other people. You know, when you're with yourself and you look up at the stars and you kind of feel overwhelmed with it, that's meaningful. Um, we experience that also with other people when we both feel like that's meaningful. Um, my personal moment with that is like when my husband and I had our son, it was just this meaningful moment of transcendence. We find it when we reach goals. And so when my partner and I support each other and being able to like live a life that feels really good to both of us, and the reason that we can do that better than the way that we did it by ourselves, um, that plays a role. You know, I am able to write this book, not just because of myself. I'm able to write this book because in reality, I had a partner 
who was supportive of me, who helped me to rate it, who let me think things through. That's meaningful. And we also experience meaning in our storytelling. And so our relationships are often a story that we tell. And that story helps us to make sense of our life. And so when we have a healthy relationship, there's so much meaning in being able to tell a story of how maybe before we met each other, things were hard for us, or maybe before we met each other, we felt lonely, or maybe we had been abused in the past, but our current relationship has given us an opportunity to experience life in a way that feels safe or feels warm or feels loving or supportive. And so it allows us to, to have a different story or a different narrative. So wonderful. Liz, I, I really love your work and I encourage everyone to get a copy of, of Liz's book. It's called, I Want This to Work, An Inclusive Guide to Navigating the Most Difficult Relationship Issues We Face in the Modern Age. It's really awesome book. And I, I'm so grateful that you took the time to join us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was so nice to talk to all of you. Take care. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. And I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com.